National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year, we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Vivek versus the field and the mugshot heard around the world. We'll discuss all this and more on this special post-debate, post-fourth arraignment edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the dominator, Dominic Pino. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and Made in Cookware. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Dominic, we all prognosticated about the debate, and I believe Noah, maybe you too, I forget, said uh, maybe you're a Tim Scott guy. Uh, Someone said Vivek would have a... uh, a good debate. I think that was was Noah in there somewhere. Now that's uh, that proposition itself is up for debate, but he certainly garnered a lot of attention. He seemed to be having a good time. He took lots of flack, including most notably from Nikki Haley on foreign policy. We're going to discuss the merits of the foreign policy debate a little bit later. But did did Vivek sway you? Dominic, are you are you coming over? Are you one of these persuadable, somewhat Trump voters who is now attracted to Vivek Ramaswamy's pitch? No. <laughs> uh, I found it very annoying. I found Vivek to be very annoying. Um, I think that's the best word to describe his performance. Um, the debate overall was actually more orderly and composed than I expected it to be which was admittedly a very low bar to clear, but they did clear it. And if Vivek was not on the stage, um, it would have been almost completely uh, orderly and composed because he was the source of, of many of the uh, disruptions of, of, of crosstalk and, and that sort of thing that the um, moderators had to clamp down on. Um, I think, uh, you, you know, he looked silly on uh, when he paraphrased Barack Obama. I don't even know if it's a paraphrase as much of a direct quote about being a, a skinny guy with a funny name, um, which uh, Chris Christie, of course, latched on to. And then uh, Nikki Haley uh, schooled him pretty good on, on, on foreign policy, something that she knows a thing or two about, and he does not. Um, his, apparent, uh, his apparent policy proposal, uh, Things like you know abandoning Taiwan after 2028 because after 2028 um, the United States will no longer need its semiconductors um, is just this 
weirdly reductionist view of what American alliances mean and what uh, and what America's standing in the world means. Um, if the idea is just that you know we're only friends with countries because they give us uh, specific things, and then once they no longer do, we just toss them aside. That's just that that's a very uh, very strange way to conduct foreign policy for the leader of the free world. And so uh, I think there's uh, yeah I think Vivek uh, was sort of demonstrated that one that he was annoying and talking over everyone, but also that when he was talking by himself, he didn't quite know what he was talking about. Yeah. So no, I, I thought DeSantis was was pretty good. He got a lot a lot of applause. I thought he was going to take a lot of incoming and be on the defensive all night. He really wasn't on the defensive at all. And Vivek took all that fire. Now, one way to look at that is good good for DeSantis that he wasn't on defense. The other way to look at it is it's Vivek who is painting with the the bold MAGA colors, where you have DeSantis who is kind of MAGA-ish or somewhere in between. And of course, the the moment that stood for this was when they were asked. We're going to get on on to Trump stuff uh, in the second segment here, including January 6th and, and what Mike Pence uh, had to say the other night. But uh, they were asked, would you vote for Trump if he was convicted? And um, a show of hands. And Ramaswamy's hand is up like he's he's the apple-polishing front-row student, you know, in eighth grade who knows the answer to the quadratic equation or whatever it is. Which uh, is who he is, up. to be clear. <laughs> yeah. And then is uh, DeSantis is, is looking around. And people notice he look, he's looking around, you know, the, the video has spread on social media. I think the reason he was looking around is because prior to that, he had made a statement, well, don't treat us like school children, right? Why, why are we raising hands for, for answers? So I, I think he was just seeing whether he was going to have to raise his hand. But that kind of stands for where these, these uh, two campaigns are. Vivek's out there. He's throwing punches. He's having fun. He seems very self-assured, whereas DeSantis always seems a little scared or at least a little calculating. That was a bad move for him in that debate stage, and it is a good metaphor for his campaign. Um, which has generally, to borrow a uh, to borrow a DeSantis phrase, been a little listless uh, in its approach to politics. Uh, he's been he's been taking his cues from the environment and uh, following them rather than shaping his environment. But and I've gotten three posts out of this now. The dynamic on that stage was to me utterly incomprehensible. I I wrote a post before the debate where I I was following off this Washington Post piece which alleged that the field now sees Vivek as the candidate to beat. And I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it that in the the doldrums of August, a media that has just gotten bored with covering the DeSantis campaign and its inevitable decline into obscurity has decided to shift its focus. And so everybody would follow suit and just ignore the guy who pulls the best against Donald Trump, who has the best funded campaign by a mile, whose organizational strength in the early states is prohibitive, you would just glide past that guy and not land a single blow on him in the race for second place. And that's what happened. And everybody was shocked that we had the Snap Washington Post uh, Ipsos poll the other day that shows DeSantis came out ahead. Why? What's shocking about that? He's the guy to beat. And all of you passed on this opportunity. To me, it was just sacrificing everything we know about political science and evaluating this thing like you would a piece of theater. It's not a performance. 
Vivek got a lot of time on that stage. And I do think that, I, I, I did suggest that he would get a bump out of it because his performance alone would be kind of dazzling. That's what I thought. And I still think he'll probably perform well in the polls, but I don't know if he did himself a ton of good favors there, in part mm -hmm. because he talked a lot, demonstrated how little he knows about the subject matter, but he was also really dark. Quote, it's not morning in America, Ramaswamy informed everybody on that stage. Quote, we live in a dark moment. We're in the midst of a, quote, cold cultural civil war. This is the sort of thing you want to convey subtextually. It's great for catastrophizing cable news addicts and people who imbibe social media to the point of intoxication. But it's not something that Republican voters are really going to respond to because it's so morose and hopeless. Republicans actually like optimism. People like optimism in a, in a, in a presidential candidate, period. And that sort of darkness is, is really the stuff of the fringes that dominate our political conversation but are not representative, I think, of the broader electorate. And not Dominic. only do they like optimism, they like the United States. I mean, that's the... Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, Charlie, what's your read on the fact that DeSantis didn't take a lot of incoming? I, I thought uh, Christie would be headhunting, not just for Vivek. He took a pretty good shot at him and, and good recall to uh, re remember in real time that the Vivek line about being skinny and having a strange name came directly from Barack Obama. But I thought he'd come after DeSantis, too. He didn't. Well, if the question is why didn't DeSantis get hit, I don't know the answer. If the question is what are the results of DeSantis not having been hit, I would propose that it means that DeSantis won the debate. Now, DeSantis is, of course, in second place, and Donald Trump remains in first place. But if you look at the numbers, it took me a few days to get to this position. I'm not always the best at reading primary politics. If you look at the numbers that we have seen subsequently, they're pretty good for DeSantis. Keeping the status quo in place has been pretty good for DeSantis. We can start with the fact that the debate was extremely widely watched for a primary debate. And well, we can what add were to those, that... What were those numbers? I've missed 12 them. million? Mm -hmm. and just and is that, and is, that, uh, that, is that competitive with 16? Yes, it is, actually. Oh, that's I actually actually put some um, some meat on those bones, not to interrupt Charlie, but I have those figures handy. Um, more than 70% of all primary debates in 2016 and 2020 it surpassed Iowa in 2016, too. So it's just apples to apples Fox debates. Great. Charlie? So it was very widely watched, but more important, perhaps, is that only 7% of the Republicans who did not watch the debate watched Trump on Twitter. That has been, of course, claimed as a great victory by the Trump people. But it was quite obviously a flop when you dig into the numbers. The number of people who watched more than about 20 seconds of Trump and Tucker was absolutely tiny. It was about 1% of the people who were claimed, who scrolled by it, who in any way interacted with it. So you have Trump's absence mattering. It was not, this time, counted by a primetime event that was widely watched or equally watched. And then you have a debate that is, for primary debates, popular. And you have the number two candidate, who in that context, of course, is the number one candidate, coming out of it unscathed and improving himself. 
So there's two numbers here that stood out to me. The first one is that DeSantis moved from 63 to 67.5% in the, quote, share of likely Republican primary voters who watch the debate who are considering voting for each candidate after the debate compared with before it. Trump moved down from 62 to 614 Now, of course, there'll be some selection there because mm-hmm. some people who are considering Trump will have tuned out completely because he wasn't there. But still. Now, this, is, this is, Charlie, is kind of the paradox on DeSantis, right? You look at the ballot test, especially nationally, it's a disaster. I, I mean, he, he's circling the drain. It's just sinking, sinking, sinking. But then you look at his his favorability numbers and his popularity, despite every, among Republicans, despite everything, it's it's held up. And, and you that's especially the see it number. in Iowa. Yeah, and that's the second number that led me to think DeSantis won. So uh, this poll, I believe, is from the Washington Post, has unfavorable and favorable numbers before and after the debate. So before the debate, DeSantis's unfavorable number was 24.7%. After it was 29.6, tiny, tiny increase. But before the debate, DeSantis was 67.5% favorable. After he was 72.4%. That is good in and of itself. But compare that with the guy who was there, the guy who the media said won the debate, the guy who spoke more than anyone else, shot his hand up, made himself the center of attention. Vivek Ramaswamy, before the debate, his unfavorable number was 12.9%. After it was 31.8%. That's a threefold increase almost. Before the debate, his favorable was 50.2%. After it was 60.4%. So back of the envelope, three times as many people saw Vivek Ramaswamy and said, I like him less now than said I like him more. Whereas DeSantis moved disproportionately up on the favorable side. That's about as good as I think you could expect mm-hmm. as the second tier candidate in August. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think DeSantis came out of it pretty well. Why was it that people focused on Vivek? Partly, I honestly believe it's because he's unbelievably annoying and you just want to punch him. Mm-hmm. They're humans <laughs> after all. They all clearly dislike him. Right. The visceral reaction that I had to him a year ago or whatever it was mm-hmm. I wrote that piece is not unique to me. You're, for once, you're, you're ahead, is, of the, ahead of the, the crowd, Charlie. Right. Ahead for once, curve. this is not me being odd or out of touch. This is what everyone thinks. I think Josh Barrow said this on Twitter, that you know, if, if he wants to punch Vivek Ramaswamy, <laughs> that's on Josh Barrow. But if Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, Doug Burgum, Nikki Haley all want to punch Vivek Ramaswamy. That's on Vivek Ramaswamy. Clearly, there is something about the guy that is just profoundly... Yeah, that's, that's the way I read. And again, we'll, we'll get the, more into the substance of foreign policy in a, in a couple minutes. But that's the way I read the reaction to the Nikki Haley slam on foreign policy, because you have no foreign policy experience, and it shows, is really not much of a slam. But I, but I think a, a goodly portion of the crowd just wanted so badly someone to put this guy in, the, in the, his place. That's why you had people jumping to, their, jumping to their feet. So, Dominic, let's go to the all-important exit question. Letter grades for the candidates. We're going to break them up throughout this ep of the pod and go letter grades for Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Nikki Haley. First round here, go. I would give Vivek a, uh, let's say a B minus. Um, I think just because uh, he 
helped himself in the sense that he was one of the lesser known candidates to a national audience. And now people know who he is. Not sure that they necessarily have a positive opinion of him, but they definitely know who he is now. So that was that was good for him. Um, but yeah, like I said, he was he was very annoying in the way he went about the debate. Ron DeSantis, I'd actually, I, I'm I'm a little bit more negative on his performance than uh, the rest of you. I think I would give him probably a C minus or maybe a D. Oh really? Why so? Low? Did you say D? Yeah, maybe C minus or D. Yeah, Whoa. possibly. I just I thought I thought wow. Every... We're never going to enroll in your your class, <laughs> Dominic. Yeah, I, I will never be popular with your students. I'm against I'm against <laughs> inflation in the economy and bank rate inflation as well. Um, I would, D. Yeah, yeah. I I found DeSantis to be first of all he came across as being very upset the whole time. Um, you know, with uh, the way that he cut off the moderators with the you know oh, we're not going to raise our hands thing, I came across as sort of poor manners, and it was something that he was clearly told to do ahead of time. You know, when they get the first, you know, he was clearly told, you know, when you when you get the first raise your hand question, uh, interrupt them and refuse to do it. And he did that and he executed that. And then when they and then, as we said before, when they did mm-hmm. another raise your hand question later. Yeah, he was like he like froze yeah, up because he wasn't great. planning ahead what he was going to do. That's right. Great. And so yeah. um, so that looked bad. Every answer that he had. I mean, you know, politicians always use debate questions as opportunities to just give scripted speeches. Um, but he did that more obviously and more robotically, I think, than the other candidates did. And mm-hmm. uh, because he never had a chance to actually interact with other candidates, because most people were focused on attacking uh, Ramaswamy, um, we didn't get to see, uh, can he think on his feet? Can he respond mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. criticism? Uh, it, it's, it's hard to say. And so, uh, you know, I, I thought that I thought his performance actually was 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 not very good and and i think it really contrasts very strangely with um both his previous political career and you know some of the ways that he campaigns uh there was at the same time that donald trump was being uh uh processed at fulton county jail yesterday uh desantis was playing baseball with his kids outside and uh, that's the kind of like positive uplifting thing that he definitely has going for him being the governor Mm -hmm. of a very successful state that people want to live in and people want to visit um, and, uh, and being able to talk about those positive stories. But then when he gets on a debate stage, it all comes across as this like scripted. Yeah, you could, you, you almost, and, yeah, you can almost feel him say, uh, saying to himself as he mentioned parts of his biography. It's like, why do I have to do this? You know, yeah, I've, exactly. I've been told to do it. So, so I'll do it. Yeah. It felt like going through a checklist and I, I would just, I would much rather see him, you know, uh, talk about those, those positive aspects of his, his career. Right, so, and his life. so C minus or D for DeSantis, Nikki Haley. Yeah. Nikki Haley. Uh, I would give her I would give her an A actually um not because she won the debate I don't think she won the debate but I think she most overperformed expectations of of you know of each candidate um I think most people were of the opinion that she was kind of and also ran at this point and was uh was uh, you know her campaign was sort of falling apart but I think she performed well she had a couple of good lines um the exchange with Pence on abortion I thought was was substantive first of all and was something that i you know mm-hmm. i almost wish we could just have a debate between her and pence for mm-hmm. an hour like display some display some thought right exactly yeah i thought that was i thought that was very good and um uh, uh you know and, and she had a couple of zingers about you know uh, uh 
kind of invoking Margaret Thatcher and, and things like that that I, that I thought played well, uh, and they and they seem to play well with the audience too in terms of applause and things like that. And so, all right, so so Noah, we got if I remember correctly, we got a, a B minus for Vivek, a C minus or D for DeSantis, and an A for Nikki Haley. Where are you? Um, so for Ron DeSantis, I would say B minus, a little nicer than than the tough grader that we have here in Dominic. But um, I think, <clears throat> I don't think he did himself any harm. So he glides through this one uh, and retains his position as Donald Trump's most viable challenger, which is a very valuable piece of real estate to occupy. I think he's running as a person he's not. I think he's running the primary campaign he ran against Adam Putnam, where he's being, he's very, manip- he's being manipulative. He's coming off as false. And quite a lot of his uh, answers on policy are trite and tawdry and um, dishonest. But he's still occupying the pole position vis-a-vis his, serious, his most serious opponent. So he glides through it. Vivek, I'm going to give him a C plus because he cleared up his name recognition problem. But as Charlie said, he did more damage to his brand than, um, than benefited it. Haley, I think, also gets an A. And she deserves a little bit more time than I guess we're going to give her because she did her campaign an immense amount of good. I do think she won that debate. I think the numbers substantiate it. Uh, that Washington Post uh, 538 Ipsos poll we've been talking about all day long uh, indicates that she has high rec- name recognition and she's well-liked among the field. Everybody in this field is actually pretty well-liked, which is uh, distinct from p- previous cycles. But among Republican debate watchers who said they're considering supporting her candidacy, uh, she went up from 29% to 46%, way better than any other candidate in the race. And she did so by uh, issuing a lot of uh, comments that basically amount to tough love to the Republican base. She's not telling it voters what they want to hear. She's telling them what they need to hear in ways that they might not respond to positively. It's a risk and a good one. It distinguishes her not just from this field of candidates, but from her entire party. And I think that level of trust in voters to be adults, to be able to navigate their environments competently and understand that there are trade-offs and downsides to every decision we make in life. I think that's a, a grown-up way to approach politics and it might pay off for her in the long run. Charlie? Look, Rich, grades, we're not children. <laughs> we have to debate. <laughs> but look around, Charlie, what's just happened? Everyone's graded. I think that I have a different way of looking at this than Dominic in that I don't believe that there is any inherent value in these debates, especially in our current political environment. And therefore, I evaluate them on a purely utilitarian basis. Namely, did the candidate hurt or help him or herself? So I'm going to give DeSantis... A B plus because I thought that he came out of it without hurting himself and in some ways consolidating his position as the alternative to Trump. I'm going to give Nikki Haley an A because I think more than anyone else on the stage, she improved her position, made herself look credible and showed some real political talent. And I agree with you that one of the reasons that the audience clapped when she took on Vivek is that he's extremely irritating. But if you look back at how she did it, she communicated really effectively. She somehow, in the space of a single sentence, managed to upbraid him for putting 
everyone on the stage down and then put him down Mm -hmm. and do so in a way that was endearing and convincing. I will give Ramaswamy a C because I think he underscored why it is that he doesn't have a chance. It's been pointed out that he hides under the same carapace as Trump and that he inspires some of the same cultish defenses. But that is only useful defensively. You can't do that offensively. Mm -hmm. He cannot be Donald Trump. He Mm -hmm. cannot replace Donald Trump. And Donald Trump could probably kill his campaign quite easily if he wanted to. So I don't think he helped himself particularly, or at least I don't think he helped himself more than he will be able to do. I will give Mike Pence an A Oops, uh, as we're well. Gonna, we're going to split them up and come, come back to oh, those, those oh, guys I later. Jumped, I right. got so into the grading <laughs> after yeah, my yeah, yeah. joke. We get, the grading is so awesome, we got to space it out. So is it just those across three? The, the, just those three someone? for now. Okay. So DeSantis, B+. Plus, he, um, he came back again and again to this theme of reversing American decline. He got a lot of applause. He... Um, uh, you know, create an impression of, of strength. But I, I, that said, I, I agree with a lot of, of Dominic's critiques. Didn't show a lot of flexibility. He just seems incapable of smiling. He has uh, no no sense of humor and just d- didn't show any ability to kind of r- react really in in real time. So it, it really leaves significant doubt. If, if Donald Trump were standing next to him, how, how he possibly would survive. But he helped himself. So I'll give him a, a B plus. I agree with everyone. It's straight A's for Nikki Haley. To be able to, to do that, make such an impression out of the fifth spot on the on the stage is quite extraordinary. Maybe she won't be able to repeat this feat in subsequent debates, but she has more of a pulse than uh, anyone was giving her, certainly than than I was giving her, and Noah's right about that. That poll shows her taking the, the biggest uh, jump ahead in terms of, of people considering her. And I'm just higher on Vivek. I think it was an A-minus performance. He's out for notoriety. Uh, he got notoriety. Uh, this is a, a, a campaign that thrives on on controversy and attention. He's not going to win the nomination, uh, obviously, um, but uh, he, he's he's out for for different um, uh, f- with different goals, e- either to block be a blocker for Trump. You know, Vivek holds on to ten percent. That makes the math. The math is already really hard, but that makes the math that much harder. And also, he just needs to be really famous and a certain niche to to love him to be a really hot media commodity at the end of this process. So with that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds, accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil and gas, and more that can help you receive an immediate tax deduction of avoid capital gains tax, and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a lifetime income stream from 
your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month and charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we had a lot of discussion about January 6th and Mike Pence's role that day. Pence, it's, it's been clear since the, the January 6th indictment, he's just un, unleashed. He's going to say uh, what he, he believes. He's going to be a conviction politician. He's going to stand up for himself and for his honor and for the Constitution. He did that quite effectively the other night, had uh, a, a really um, a strong and eloquent statement of support from Chris Christie and pretty much everyone on the stage in a, in a heartening um, phenomenon, what might have been a little felt a little different if Donald Trump had been up there. Almost everyone on the stage supporting him, except for Vivek, who took a pass on answering whether Pence did the right thing on January 6th. And our own John McCormick caught him in the green room and got this gobbledygook statement about how Vivek would have handled things differently if he had been vice president and somehow gotten a national consensus that that only uh, same-day votes would have counted or there would have been a revote or something. It was completely incoherent. And then this is one of DeSantis's bad moments yeah. when he was asked this question, just saying, yes, you know, Pence did the right thing, but we can't focus on January 6th. We need to focus on, on January 2025, yada, yada, yada. Just refused, went straight to we got to focus on the future without answering the question, had to get badgered into this grudging, yeah, Mike did his, his uh, duty. I don't, have a, I don't have a beef with Mike. What did you make of it? Well, I agree that it was weak. And I hesitate to say cowardly because I don't know what motivated it. It certainly seemed cowardly. If he was trying to answer it in a way that was forward-looking rather than backwards-looking, okay, but you have a responsibility as a public figure to tell the truth. Yeah, I and just think he doesn't want to be, he knows how unpopular Pence is and just well, doesn't want to be associated then, with him. Then it's cowardly. Then it's cowardly. It was a bad answer from DeSantis. I, I thought Pence did a really good job. I think, am I allowed to give him a grade? Wade, come on, Charlie. And he, he's there to make the case that he made. And he made it. I mean, you, you could see how it might be tempting for somebody to enter the race for one reason and then once in, change your mind he's badgered everywhere he goes by trump fans who call him a traitor say he's guilty of treason and that he helped steal an election that can't be pleasant but he made it clear right from the beginning that he was there to maintain that he kept his oath and that he was obliged to keep his oath and that keeping his oath was the right thing to do and that donald trump is not eligible or shouldn't be eligible for office because he didn't keep his oath. So I'd be good for him. Good for him. Yes. Yeah, so, so Noah, we saw a couple things on the stage. One, Christie, you know, was courting booze and, and making the 
commonsensical point that whatever you think of the various indictments of Trump and the legal ins and outs, the, the underlying conduct should be disqualifying and intolerable. But other candidates, you know, including DeSantis, they don't want those booths. They think it's too costly. And then no one really made the case why they should be the nominee rather than Trump in, in any sort of notable way. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And it's unfortunate. Um, Republicans, just as I, I mean, we're all sensitive to minute vibrations in the media milieu, milieu that we, we occupy. And the campaigns are just the same. Part of the reason why I think they went after Vivek that way is because of a media narrative. And there's a lot of assumption on the part of these candidates that making a straightforward case against Donald Trump will cost you. But what was this segment about January 6th but a proxy argument for Donald Trump's fitness for office and whether he should win the Republican nomination? And I don't know how you can watch that segment and say that Republican voters are 100% entirely on board with the idea that January 6th was stolen and Mike Pence is a traitor who should have been hung in the streets and we need to relitigate the 2020 election into infinity. That was probably Ron DeSantis' worst moment during that question. But it was also his best moment of the night when he was finally dragged into it and responded to it and did the whole, oh, we got to move forward thing, where he said, listen, if we're relitigating 2020, we're going to lose. And he got prof- really long, sustained applause, mm-hmm. likewise. So, so you, few- read, you read that as, an, as uh, it's, it's, an away t- it's a way to evade criticizing Trump at the same time it's a criticized criticism of Trump. Yeah, and I, I do think they should be stronger, and it's not just to satisfy my particulars, um, because you do have to make the case for yourself, and the case for yourself necessarily involves making the case against the guy everybody, according to polls, is planning on voting, voting for. Um, but all the candidates on that stage, with the exception of Vivek and uh, you know, Ron DeSantis' kind of foot-dragging, supported uh, Mike Pence's behavior on January 6th, and that's not some weird departure from the polling. I mean, polling back in 2022 that shows if it's not a closely run question, a majority, majority, not plurality, majority of Republicans, at least according to this February 2022 Quinnipiac survey, thought Mike Pence did the right thing. It's not a hard call to make. It's not like you're you're going to be offending a really significant segment of the Republican electorate by saying that. Um, so I... I I don't think that's fraught territory for Republicans to get into. I don't think Mike Pence did himself too many favors on that debate stage. He got a lot of speaking time, and he was very aggressive going after um, his fellow opponent, his opponents, in ways that I don't think did him many favors. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was he did not get repudiated in the way you might expect from a very Trumpy audience and a Trumpy field appealing to Trump voters. Dominic. Yeah, I think DeSantis's problem on that question is the same problem I was touching on earlier. I mean, I, I think he was, I think he was, he, in his debate prep, he said, okay, when I get the January 6th question, this is the speech I'm going to give. And he got the January 6th question, and that was the speech he was going to give, but it was phrased as a yes or no, do you think Mike Pence did the right thing? And so he didn't answer the question. He launched right into the speech, and then finally was goaded into actually answering the question, because I think he realized after he got over that initial hurdle that, um, that, uh, that uh, it would actually help him to to answer the question straightforwardly, and so um, you know even if that's 
if that's not what happened, that's certainly what it looked like. And so I, I think it's this. I think it's this this same problem of uh, of not being able to uh, or of treating everything as opportunity to give a speech. But I think Pence. Um, I think Pence did well. Uh, I have written before that I'm, I'm glad that Pence is running, and I'm glad he's actually making this case uh, because he has been lied about a lot by a lot of powerful people. And it's good that he feels a sense of honor to go out and, and, and defend himself. I, I don't think he's going to be the nominee, uh, but uh, and I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent he believes he's going to be the nominee. But I think he thinks it's important to go out there and actually make the case to people and present people with a choice and say, "Hey, look, uh, I'm a conservative. I've been a conservative for you know 25 years. I've been active in politics. I've I've done all these different things: governor of Indiana, uh, member of the House, vice president." And, uh, uh, and, and if you're going to throw that all away again, uh, in favor of a former game show host, that's a choice you can make, but I want to make sure you have a choice. And so I, I think that's a, I think that's a good reason to run a campaign. All right. So Charlie, finally, the moment has come for letter grades for Mike Pence, Chris Christie, yes. and Tim Scott. Oh, finally. I've been sitting here. I'm all <laughs> popped up. Like I've had 26 coffees just waiting for the letter grading. My hand's up in the air like Viva. You <laughs> can't see it, but it shot right up. So, well, I think Mike Pence is an A because he improved his position and he did what he set out to do. As I say, he's in the race for a reason and he executed, as football coaches like to say. I thought Chris Christie was subdued. He had a good moment with Vivek, but he didn't seem to me to be as bellicose as he was back in 2016 and you mentioned tim scott i can do tim scott yes absolutely i think tim scott had the worst night of anyone i think he really didn't show up i mean he missed half of what is necessary when you're the sunny candidate which is the substance i am a fan of sunny candidates and optimism and people who, as Dominic keeps saying, like the United States of America. I think there is a great deal that is winsome about Tim Scott and that there's certainly a role for him to play. But he's going to need to bring a great deal more detail than that. So, Ronald so, Reagan, what, so what are the grades on Christie and Scott? Oh, sorry. I'm, 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 I'm screwing this episode up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give... Well, I'll give Tim Scott a D, and I'll give Christy a C. Okay. Dominic? Uh, I would give Tim Scott a D as well, um, for many of the same reasons Charlie mentioned. Um, he had one nice line about uh, uh, sticking it to the teachers' unions that I appreciated. But other than that, it was pretty. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty weak performance from him. He's excellent on the campaign trail, and he's excellent in interviews as well. He's very, very good in those settings, but he just seemed really uh really uh kind of uh, uh aloof in the um in the in the debate setting uh i would give pence and i give pence an a minus let's say um i think he had uh i think he had some some good moments and and like i said i think he's um uh, uh I, I think he i think he did what he wanted to do there um there was a couple spots probably where uh where he could have could have uh done that a little bit better um, and there was a couple spots too where he seemed like he was whining about the whining about the rules a little bit, which I always I find off-putting in, in debates. Um, and then Christie, Christie's tough. I, I I guess I'd give him a C. Um, 
I think he needed to have some kind of a knockout uh, in in the debate because that's you know the purpose of his campaign. He didn't do that. I think he could have knocked out Vivek uh, Ramaswamy harder if if he had stuck to it. I think he he of all people really should have pressed Vivek on his strange 9/11 comments um, because mm-hmm. uh, I think that would have been a really good thing for him. Yeah. Although I was Went totally unmentioned. Yeah, and and I was really. But I, but I was really impressed with the way that Christie defended his decision to visit Ukraine um, because uh, that was something that Vivek brought up in a very crude and crass way, describing Zelensky as the Pope, um, as, you know, making a pilgrimage to the Pope. Uh, just, uh, very, 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 uh, very off-putting way to, to describe that. And so I think Christie did well of explaining, you know, what America's interest is there and and why, uh, and why the Ukrainians uh, deserve uh, U.S. support? So um, I thought it was a mixed bag for Christie. So, uh, but but he didn't get that knockout that he needed. So I'll give him a C. Noah, uh, it's a, a good point. I wanted to uh, touch on that Pino just made about uh, uh, Vivek about how he he was swinging for the fences and trying to get these you know five second sound bites into the press, but he stepped all over them every time with these gratuitous insults. That Zelensky thing messed up that soundbite. The bought and paid for thing messed up a soundbite he was going for. His 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 design is to get all this all these soundbites out in the press, and then they end up making him look bad because he just laces them with gratuitous insults, trying to mimic the Trump effect. But back to the question at issue: Mike Pence, B plus. He did what he tried to do. He, he said he did what he set out to do. Um, he was a little overeager in in attempting to pick fights, and he got them. But he he didn't really have the landing blow, so he just just shy of uh, an A grade. Uh, Christie, straight up regular B. Um, I think it was smart of him to show up and begin with a, a little subdued and solicitous approach to an audience that just hates him. <laughs> so uh, that was a smart approach. But he didn't he didn't accomplish what he set out to do. He went and gotten this one engagement with Vivek, and he tried to bring the book into it, and then he was just being booed so hard that he lost his train of thought. His The boos really threw him off on a couple of occasions, and he dealt with that as admirably as anybody could. I would never perform as well in his shoes. Um, but he set out to make be, be, serve as a wrecking ball uh, for Trump's you know, um, persona, and he didn't achieve that. So just to be... And Scott, yes, as Charlie said, had the worst performance, so D+. Plus. Uh, he set out to really preserve the Mr. Nice Guy Act, which works for senior voters, but you're, you do have to act like you're behind the eight ball. He passed on every opportunity, um, and you only get so many. Um, he's swimming in cash, so he's got room to, to run for a while, but he did himself no favors on that stage. So I almost agree with all your grading, Noah, except I wouldn't put the plus on the D for Tim Scott. He just didn't make an impression. He had to. It plays into the sense that he, uh, probably unfairly, that he he lacks substance. But just to, to stand up there and just regurgitate your stump speech all night was was very bad. And he was a total non-factor. I also give a B plus to Mike Pence. I think the substance of what he said was great. But I, I just think there's there's something about the kind of over-earnest attempt to take down the uh, smarmy, um, insincere guy. It just it just doesn't – it didn't quite, as, as Noah said, it, it just didn't quite land, unfortunately. And I give Christie a B. He needs to make big impressions. The, these debate stages are really important for him because he doesn't have a, a lot of a campaign going otherwise. And I think he's a, he's a talented – 
communicator. I have a soft spot for Chris Christie, but he didn't do what he needed to do, so it's just a B. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor, this episode, Made in Cookware. We have made-in frying pans here in the Lowry kitchen, and they are awesome. Made-in was created by a 100-year-old family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply. It works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Your best meals are ahead of you with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Made-in's award-winning non-stick, that's really important, Cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Its stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. We have found this all to be emphatically true in the Lowry kitchen. Our made-in pans are great to handle. They do cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation, and especially my wife's recommendation. Right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from made-in. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash Editors. So, Noah, we had some foreign policy debate on the stage. And Dominic was just making reference to some of it with this uh, Zelensky as Pope comment from Vivek. Vivek clearly uh, trying very hard to channel the uh, is- isolationist sentiment within the Republican Party and that uh, contemptuous way of viewing. Of Zelensky, you had DeSantis sort of characteristically a little bit in between. He was asked to raise his hand, whether he would cut off aid to Ukraine. Ramaswamy's, of course, shot up reflexively. And then DeSantis did this sort of half half kind of hand up. It was like a little bit of a hand up and a little bit of a, a signal for recognition and said that he would definitely cut off aid if the Europeans didn't do more, and then we had a, a more forthright defense of Ukraine aid from Christie, from Pence, and from Nikki Haley. You wouldn't know it to survey the discourse on right-wing social media or on cable news, but the issue of material support for Ukraine sharply divides the Republican Party, almost right down the middle. And it's very much dependent in polling on the wording of the question, and it's very much dependent on what the facts are on the ground. And this is a fluid battlefield, so those those conditions change, and with them, as they should, change Republican opinion. It was an interesting exchange about Ukraine aid. I thought there was more courage on that stage than I anticipated seeing. The only people who raised their hands when they said, would you not support this aid, was Vivek Ramaswamy, who rocketed right up because he's that kind of guy, and DeSantis reluctantly. Um, And you can sense the emerging dynamic here because Republicans, Republican voters are not isolationists. Republican voters are not scared of power projection. Uh, A particularly loud uh, contingent within the Republican Party that is insistent upon its inevitable ascendancy is. But the rest of the electorate is not. And you can sense that they are attempting to erase what is a a liability by being kind of squishy about Ukraine's continued defense. 
and neutralizing that by saying, well, I actually really, really want to engage in kinetic operations on the southern border and possibly inside Mexican territory against drug cartels. And that was something that Ron DeSantis said on that stage, that he would approve on day one kinetic military operations inside Mexico. Anybody who knows anything about anything knows that's not true, knows you were just misled. And the DeSantis campaign was compelled 24 hours later to admit, oh, that was an aspirational, sort of a rhetorical thing on the part of Ron DeSantis. But that's a mistake. It's an error. You have just said something that is not true to the people you are asking to vote for you. And it's a pander. And it's one that I can't imagine will have significant returns over time because that's a perennial issue. Instability across the southern border is not something we're not used to. The active war of conquest in Europe for the first time since 1945 is very much a unique and distinct issue and an acute threat to American national security. Um, I was heartened to see Republicans, Republican candidates, defend the necessity of this mission and our support for it uh, in really not, not uncertain terms, very much putting themselves out there, not just Nikki Haley and Chris Christie and Mike Pence, who deserves high marks for his, his remarks too, but uh, the advocacy of a particularly Reagan-esque approach to um, diminishing Russia's capacity to project power over its borders. Uh, it seemed like the audience responded to it. It seemed like that was a majority position on that stage. And it seems like this is not embracing the Ukrainian cause is not the risk to your political brand that a lot of the consultant class seems to think having consumed too much right-wing media. So, so Charlie, to, 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 your, to your eyes and ears, who, who won the Ukraine exchanges? <sighs> I don't know. I'm the worst person to ask on this because I never know what I think. And so I follow along at home. That's people who are undecided on many political questions do, which is a rare feeling. Um, I, I thought that the person who did not win the Ukraine exchanges was DeSantis because he seemed to me to be caught between two mm -hmm. stools. And the problem for him is that even if that comes from a position of nuance, <laughs> for which I have a great deal of sympathy because my own position is unclear, it doesn't suit him. It's so unusual to mm -hmm. watch him <laughs> yeah. seem unsure. So I thought that was a weak moment for him, albeit one that didn't necessarily hurt him. And I don't think that Ramaswamy's position is sincere. So I, I sense that other people watching it feel the same. Uh, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I, 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 I find this hard to evaluate. I think Ramas, I, 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 can I just say that briefly, Ramaswamy is a profoundly valuable foil for people who are advocates of an extroverted American presence on the world stage because he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about and is so self-assured that anybody who actually does know what they're talking about, as a lot of those candidates do, can just dismantle him before mm -hmm. our very eyes with pretty with precision and without a lot of effort being expended. Yeah, it, was, it was kind of a tell. I, th I think he, he said three different times sh showing that he really had nothing else to say on the issue that uh, we need to pry uh, Russia from from the clutches of, right. of China. Right. His, his one weird trick is appeasement. Yeah. So, so, Dominic, let's go to a little bit to the substance of the issue. You have been tangling with our friends at the Heritage Foundation over a, a meme and an argument they've been making that we're going to give a measly $700 per, 
person to the uh, victims of the, the wildfire out in Hawaii, but we've taken $900 per person from, from those folks in Hawaii and everyone in America and shipped it over to Ukraine. Yes, that framing of the issue uh, I don't find to be um, – I disagree with, with framing the issue that way. I don't think it's honest with people um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all is that um, that the $900 number is uh, derived from dividing $113 billion, which is the total in all aid um, given to Ukraine over the entire conflict, um, dividing that by the number of households. In the United States, and that comes out to about $900. Now, there's a problem with saying, as Heritage did, Biden took $900 and gave it to Ukraine. Um, first of all, uh, it was not Biden who took the money. Uh, this was, uh, you know, most of these, uh, these these packages were approved by bipartisan majorities of Congress and signed into law. Um, so uh, attributing the entire thing to Biden is not is not correct. Um as to the taking part, um, Congress did not raise taxes to pay for this. Uh, the money that is being spent is either, uh, or I should say, the money that is being added together to come to that total for aid is comes in a couple different categories. Some of it is new spending, and that is deficit spending. Um, and so that will need to be paid back by future Americans. But current Americans do not feel the, the burden of that because, again, that is the, – the, Congress did not raise taxes to do that. Um, another category of that money is money that we already spent because a lot of the weapons that are going to Ukraine are old weapons that the United States would need to decommission anyway. And so uh, that money was spent in the past. That's that's over and done with. And so uh, it is not new. It is not new spending on top of, of anything that is currently going on. And then uh, another category is uh spending on new weapons, but obviously um, some of that money goes to Americans in the form of the companies that make weapons uh, that will then uh, go and send those to, uh, to for Ukrainians to use. Um, and so uh, uh, the idea that all of the money, that all of that $113 billion was somehow just given to Ukrainians um, is, is, not, is not right. Um, and so, and then finally, they the comparison that that heritage has been making is to the Maui wildfires. Now, why these two things are related is completely unclear. Um, they're trying to say that you know that the uh, seven hundred dollars went to wildfire victims and nine hundred dollars went to Ukrainians. Well, I just walked through why the nine hundred dollar number isn't quite what it seems to be. And then, the, but this idea that uh, somehow the United States doesn't spend enough domestically. Um, and is too focused on foreign aid. I mean, come on. Uh, this is this, these are the kind of uh, talking points that politicians on both sides of the aisle have used for many years to try to um, distract from the actual cause of our fiscal problems, which are broadly popular domestic programs. Um, that's that that's why we're in a spending problem. That's what that's why we have a debt problem. It is not because of foreign aid. We could cancel all of our foreign aid to every country, including Ukraine. Uh, we could cancel all that tomorrow, and it would not make a lick of difference in the uh, in the long term budget projections. And so, uh, this this idea that um, there's this huge fiscal case against Ukraine aid just doesn't add up. And uh, you know, really, none of the the candidates on stage made that case either. Um, it's uh, the the you know even Vivek 
um, who was the one who's most opposed to it, didn't really quite put it in those terms. And so uh, I don't see the the argument uh, being used by many politicians that are trying to uh, get people's votes. All right. So buckle your seatbelts, everyone. Final sets of grades to you first, Charlie, Asa, Asa Hutchison and Doug Bergram. I we're, we're find the prospect of Asa Hutchinson being on another debate stage the most inexplicable development in American <laughs> politics. I don't understand what the case for him is or why he's there or who he is. Sometimes I go into my room when uh, I'm... It's bedtime, and I expect him to be standing in the corner for no reason. It's just so strange. <laughs> I mean, how do how do I evaluate him? I, I don't know how to give him a grade. Present, I suppose, is his grade. <laughs> Doug Burgum is a different character. I don't quite know why he's running either, but I do like him. He's he's a really good governor. If he were parachuted into the Oval Office, I think he'd do a fantastic job. Absolutely. I. Don't quite know how he fits into this presidential primary, though. I'm not sure what the theory of the case is. So, I mean, I'll give him a a B. I, I'm I'm a Bergam fan, but what is there to be said beyond that? Dominic, we got a present and a B. Yeah, I would give Hutchinson a grade of incomplete. Um, I'm really not sure. <laughs> I'm really not sure why he was there, and it was it was awkward actually um, that he was up there. Uh, Bergam, Bergam, I give an A as 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 the as one of the only people who wrote a pro Bergam piece the day that Bergam announced his candidacy. Uh, you were ahead of the curve. I would like to say yes because I am I am a fan of Midwestern Republican governors, and so uh, he's been an excellent governor of North Dakota. Um, strongly pro life, uh, done a great job on tax reform, done a great job on uh, energy policy in in North Dakota, which is obviously a really big deal there. And um, he uh, and and as Charlie said, if we could just parachute him into the Oval Office, I think he'd be fantastic. He came across as a normal guy, just talking common sense. He didn't talk down to anybody, um, and and he and he scored some good points, especially on on uh, on China uh, being 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 hawkish about China, um, and also and also when he talked about energy. Um, again, he he knows what he's talking about. He's actually done the job of leadership. Um, and that's why primary voters probably don't care about him at all. But I give him an A. <laughs> no. F minus for Asa Hutchison. Or, uh, yeah, I don't. It's not just that he's not making a case for himself. It's that I don't. I don't know what he's there for. I think he's an issues candidate, and the issue is Donald Trump isn't fit to be president. But if you're gonna be a kamikaze, I mean, you really have to hit the target, and he doesn't. Uh, so he fails, not just incomplete or present, abject failure. Bergam, I give an A minus, can you because you were right, Rich. Um, he's mm-hmm. a very impressive figure because he actively eschewed sound bites. Mm-hmm. He refused to be a personality. He was actually he was trying to walk away from that and instead presenting us with really sound, thoughtful, um, policy-centered answers. And a, and a deep well of knowledge when it comes to energy policy. Uh, I found that impressive. He is disqualified from this race because in 
literally bribing people to support his campaign, he has done unforgivable violence to my sense of civic propriety. <laughs> but he's an impressive person on the stage. And he should get some so, extra credit, yeah. too, for doing it on the same day he tore his Achilles. Oh, yeah. No, that, that's, that's, that's huge. You never should play basketball over age 50, though. So I, I give an F to Asa. I, I mean, I could get on board and incomplete or present, whatever. He just needs to go away. It won't make a huge difference, but he's sitting on 1%. That should go to someone else. Burgum, I give a, a B. I agree with all the positive things that, that were said about his performance, but he was was down at the the end of the stage. But I think he's a winsome guy, and I don't think it's completely insane that if everyone else crashes and burns in, in Iowa for some reason, that that he he could possibly see a a, a flicker of a chance there, but oh, that's wow. uh, a very Rich, don't get my hopes up like that. scenario. <laughs> 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 All right, with that, let me do real quick and our plus plug. Please, 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 we need people to pay a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit for our content. If you sign up for NR Plus, the meter paywall goes away. If you sign up and log in, you see 90% fewer ads, you can comment on articles and blog posts, you can get invited to exclusive calls and events. So it's a great deal all around, and most importantly, a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider signing up today, tomorrow, the day after, I don't care, on the exact timing, and join tens of thousands of your fellow National readers as a member of NR Plus. So let's hit a few other things before we go. Noah, you're preparing for back to school. Preparing? It's upon us. Kids went back on Thursday. Really? Wow. Yeah, That's a little insane. early. It's very Absolute early for the slackers. Northeast. Jeez. Slackers. My kids have been back for two weeks. But that's really? a Southern thing. That's what, yeah. when I was growing up, going back before Labor Day so was like a Southern er- thing. So like early August, Charlie? Yeah, Southern schools go back early. Do they get out early? Yeah. How early? Like end, end of, of May? May. Oh, all right. I guess that's a, I can live with that trade-off. It's, it's weird, though. I mean, even neighboring districts don't go back as early as we do. But regardless, uh, I'm not complaining. Uh, we, my long-suffering <laughs> wife no longer has to play cruise director for our children every morning and give them activities, keep them busy. Otherwise, they turn on you. Uh, so it's, it's nice to, to have the, the house a little quiet in the afternoon. I'll miss them. But give me a little bit of time to enjoy this. this so, so Dominic, your softball team had an epic, what, 12 to 9 victory? Uh, 13 to 9, yeah. Uh, 13 my to 9, softball wow. team is, a, is an exaggeration, but uh, myself, uh, Manfred Wendt, who is National Review Institute's um, uh, student outreach director, and uh, Haley Strack, uh, a Buckley fellow, we are all on a softball team here in D.C. And, uh, Just like a Capitol Hill? Yes, yes. It's, yep, team? Yep, so... Is there? Does it have a core identity, like some office is drawing on, or or is it just random? Uh, no, it is. It is pretty random. So uh, you know, the three of us from NR, I think the, I think that might be the most people who work for the same place uh, that are all on there. But uh, okay, so it's practically the NR softball team. What position do you play? Uh, I'm kind of a backup infielder, um, and uh, uh, so you 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 can go on any any position, third, short, second. Yeah, yeah. So they usually put me in about get, halfway yeah, through. Do you have enough of a uh, do you have enough of an arm for third base? Yeah, that's what I always played growing up uh, because I'm not okay. I'm not super fast, so shortstop's not a great spot for me. But mm-hmm. I do have a pretty good arm, so third third ends up working well. Awesome! All right, awesome, Charlie. I just enjoy the fact that the weather here is such that you can arrange things weeks in advance and then do them. 
This is not what life is like in England, where if you arrange a barbecue or a garden party a month ahead of time, you really do spend the days leading up to it praying that it's going to be okay and it's not going to drizzle all day. I don't do that here. This is a great joy in my life. And it's true in other parts of the United States as well, with the exception of hurricane season, which, of course, really is somewhat binary. It's either really nice weather or apocalyptic, what I call Jurassic Park weather. It's just nice all the time. And it was pretty much nice all summer when I lived in Connecticut. And it's nice all the time in California. America just has so much sunshine that it makes life easier because you can say, yes, we'll have a birthday party on this date in a year and you're pretty much guaranteed it will be fine. So a a while ago, I made friends with someone who worked at a a, a Brooks Brothers that wasn't too far from the National Review office. We just immediately hit it off for some reason. I'm not known for my sartorial splendor, but I I did occasionally have to go in there for suits or alterations or, or ties. And sometimes my wife would come with me to supervise me appropriately, and she became um, friends with this this uh, gentleman a- as well. And we've stayed in touch. We, you know, ex- exchange gifts around holidays. We occasionally uh, go to events together. And and not too long ago, he he's retired for some years now. He reached out to me. He's like, Rich, do you? I had all these ties I, I had to wear at work. You know, d- these mint condition Brooks Brothers ties. Would you like them? And I was like, Nah. You know, you don't. You don't really. You don't need to do that. But if if you want to, you know, you go ahead. And then this like crate arrives at at my house, and it just it slowly dawned on me. This is probably the most generous gift I have ever gotten in my life. I mean, the, the, these are mint condition, beautiful ties. If I wore one uh, on the occasions I need to wear a tie, um, try, tried to wear a different one every, every year, I probably wouldn't exhaust them. I, it's like a lifetime supply of ties. And it just goes to... Um, uh, you know, giving's better than than receiving, but there, there's something uh, really wonderful and humbling about receiving. And and every time I kind of dip into this crate to pull out a new tie, I think about my friend. So it's it's uh, a wonderful thing. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Dominic Pino, what's your pick? I pick Noah Rothman's piece about uh, Nikki Haley treating ah. me like an adult. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that. Uh, you know, that that she said on the stage, hey, we got to talk about what's practical and we got to talk about what's going on. And look, there's going to be some trade-offs because uh, you're a grown-up and you can handle that. And I appreciated that uh, level of of uh, of discourse. And uh, I thought Noah did a really good job of highlighting why that's valuable and how Haley did it well. Noah, what's your pick? Mark Antonio Wright, the conventional wisdom on Trump is wrong. Uh, he took a bullet for us and watched the sit-down interview that um, Donald Trump gave with Tucker Carlson, which was meant to counter-program the debate, failed in that way. And he assesses Trump's performance in a way that others have not. The assumption, the conventional wisdom that he's arguing against is that if Trump was on that stage, he'd have blown everybody out of the water. He's the big dog, the alpha in the room, the silverback. You can't go after him. And he'll go after you and he'll succeed. And Mark doesn't think that's necessarily true. We haven't seen Donald Trump debate against his fellow Republicans since 2016, and we barely saw him debate in 2020 against Joe Biden. The third debate was canceled. Uh, Mark assesses from this video, from the the president's performance broadly, but this video in particular, that he's lost a step and his debate skills have atrophied, and maybe his boosters shouldn't be 
urging him to get on that stage as much as they as they they are. Charlie. Well, I was going to pick Noah's piece on Nikki Haley as well, but instead I will pick Phil Klein's piece from this morning. Ron DeSantis is failing because he's campaigning with an abundance of caution. I wouldn't endorse the word failing. I don't think DeSantis's campaign is failing, but I do think that almost all of the problems that one can identify with the DeSantis campaign come from his desire to stay at every point in perfect control and never deviate from any plan he's contrived or uh, strategy he's considered. And I think he's going to have to change that because he is who he is. He's always going to be who he is. And it's obvious when he's pretending to be someone else. It was most obvious during the debate last week when he smiled forcibly at the end of each answer and then quickly stopped himself as if he could feel that he looked odd. Don't do that. I mean, I understand some of the criticisms that we've heard today that he seems amped up or even angry. Okay, that's who he is. For better or for worse, that's who he is. Richard Nixon was not Reagan. He still won twice. So I think Phil is basically right. I, I think that DeSantis is being too cautious. I think he's scared of letting go. And ultimately, he will have to let go. Hopefully for him, it won't be too late. So my pick is the cover piece in the new print issue by Seth Cropsey on the Navy. We need to confront China and the Pacific or deal with the threat from China. I'm an amateur, I guess the better way to put it is aspiring navalist. So I love these sort of pieces. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Dominic. Thanks to Waterstone and Made in Cookware. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.